Uh, we appreciate you all being here today as we are in our uh, lead up to Easter series. We're calling this series Kingdom Come, and we are in part three of a four-part series. We're going to land this plane next Sunday on Easter Sunday. And uh, this is, as I said, our lead up to Easter series. And if we take a look at the events that are recorded in the Gospels, about 50% of what we're given in the Gospels has to do with this one week, this one week in the life of Jesus and the life of his disciples. And so it's an action-packed week, and we've been talking about some of the events that take place uh, during that week. In part one of this series, we talked about the fact that Jesus is our Savior. Yes, you've probably heard that before. Jesus is our Savior, but we clarified what it is Jesus actually came to save us from. If you look back to the time, Jesus' own time, the Israelites wanted Jesus to save them from Rome, but Jesus did not come into this world to save one group of people from Rome. A few years back, there are plenty of us Christians who wanted Jesus to save us from a pandemic, but that was not the agenda of Jesus to save us from a pandemic. And over the years, so many people turned to Jesus and asked to be rescued from some kind of a, a temporary trial, a, a temporary suffering, but Jesus did not enter into this world to save us from these temporary trials or temporary hardships. In fact, Jesus promised us at the Last Supper that we would face trials in this world, but to take heart, for He has overcome the world. Paul also tells us that we will go through trials in this life. We will go through those hard times, and those hard times reshape us, and they purify us, and they make us who we need to be. They refine us. They purify our character. And so Jesus is our Savior, but what he came to save us from is hell. Jesus came into this world to solve the biggest problem of all time, to save us, to save humankind from hell. Last week, we talked about why it's so important that our understanding of who Jesus is be based on the text, be based on on Scripture. We need to base our idea of who Jesus is based on what the Bible says, and when we turn to Scripture, it's very clear who Jesus is. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. That's how John the Baptist first identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, God's sacrificial Lamb who was sent to this earth to take away the sins of the world, and that's where we're going to pick up this week with the topic of sin. It's a fun topic to discuss as we Lead up to Easter, we're here in this happy time of year. Let's talk about sin and what sin is. Uh, growing up in the church, I was taught about the importance of evangelism. Is that a term you're familiar with, evangelism? Evangelism is actually a wonderful, uh, beautiful thing. Uh, we named our middle daughter Evangeline. It's the same root word, evangelism. It means a, a beautiful, beautiful thing to tell other people about Jesus, to share the gospel of Jesus, and to tell the story of God's love and what Jesus has done for us, that he died on the cross for our sins. Unfortunately, some people, when they hear that term evangelism, have kind of a negative connotation sometimes. You think about the televangelist who's just after your money, or maybe you think about the street corner preacher that's standing on a soapbox telling you the end is near. But evangelism is actually a beautiful Wonderful thing to tell somebody who does not know about Jesus, to tell them about Jesus and his great sacrifice for us. As a kid growing up in church, I was taught that the first step of evangelism is convincing the person you're talking to that they are a sinner, that you are a sinner. That's the first step in evangelism. That's what I was taught. And that felt kind of overwhelming for me, all right? I mean, I'm a kid growing up in church life. I'm 10 years old and thinking, the first thing that I need to do is convince somebody else that they're a bad person? Whoa! But a little overwhelming. And yet, I can't help but agree with the logic behind that sentiment. Perhaps if we rephrase that same idea in a different way, 
before a person can receive Christ as their Savior, they need to acknowledge the fact that they need to be saved from something. I mean, that adds up logically, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever tried to help somebody that doesn't want your help? Yeah, you know what that's like? Before a person can receive help, they first have to acknowledge that I need help, and then they can receive help from the helper. That's just how it works. Think of it this way. Imagine you're at a rooftop party. Did you ever go to a rooftop party? Oh, they look fun on TV. You're at a rooftop party, and you're doing, you know, whatever people do on rooftop parties. Yeah, right? You're having a grand old time. And then a helicopter swoops in, and it lets down that rope ladder. You know that rope ladder thing you've seen now in the helicopters? They let down the rope ladder. And over a bullhorn, somebody shouts down, come on up, we're here to rescue you. And you're thinking, what are we doing? We're having a party, we're having a good time. Get out of here, and you shoo them away. Well, unbeknownst to you, the first floor of the building is engulfed in flames, right? Now, if you knew that, you would accept the help. If you knew that, you would accept that rescue, but you need to know it first, yes? I hope you'll forgive me for over-explaining this point, but it's an important point before we can receive Christ as Savior. We need to acknowledge that we need to be saved from something before we reach out and grab that ladder. That's just how it works. I was taught this method of evangelism as a kid. I was taught that there's a way to engage people in conversation, and maybe you've heard this before. I mean, there's some variations of this, but it basically goes like this. I'll act this out for us. And so basically, if you were trying to initiate a conversation about the gospel, you'd start in this way. You'd ask that other person, hey, if you were to die today, you're nodding your head. You know this already? If you were to die today, do you think you would go to heaven? And most often the person would reply, well, well yes, I, I, if I were to die today, and I hope that I don't, but if I were to die today, I, I would go to heaven. Well, why, why do you think you would go to heaven if you died today? And most often the person would say, well, because I am a good person, right? Yeah? Because that's how we think of ourselves. It's basically, I mean, we're not perfect, but we're basically good people. And so that's the response you would get. Well, I think I would go to heaven today because I'm a good person, to which you would say, well, have you ever told a lie? And the person would say, well, yes, I've told a lie, but again, I'm not claiming to be perfect. I'm just, you know, listen, I've never killed anybody. I've never stolen anything. I've never done anything really bad, so I'm basically a good person. And so that would lead to a conversation over the question of how good is good enough how good do you have to be in order to access heaven, to gain entrance into heaven? And that would lead to a conversation about the gospel, and that none of us, <laughs> none of us are good enough on our own. This is something that I believe as a Christian, this is something that we believe as a church, that none of us are good enough on our own to earn entrance into heaven. The book of Romans this is a letter originally written by Paul to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 3. I'm going to begin with verse 23. And in this verse, and in this passage, Paul explains this idea, this, this fairly harsh idea in gentle words, which is nice, because sometimes Paul can be very harsh, but he explains this gently in Romans 3, beginning with verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, the shedding of His blood. Again, here is Jesus, the Lamb of God that is sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. All have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And again, I think that's a very polite 
and gentle way to put it. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. Continue on in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23. Paul tells us, for the wages of sin is death. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And what we earn, our wages of our sin, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, and it is a gift, it's not something you earn. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so there you have in that one statement the comparison. What we earn through our sin is death, but the gift that we're given is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before Paul sat down to write this letter to the church in Rome, John, the disciple, he wrote the Gospel of John. Actually, he had the experiences that he would later write as his Gospel, as his biography of the life of Jesus. And in John chapter 3, we have this very well-known, this, this famous verse. It's probably the most quoted verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16. You've heard it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what this is all about. God loved us, and that's why he gave us his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, shall not perish, but will have the gift of eternal life. And when John sat down to write this statement, when John sat down, he actually, you know, he was writing in Greek, and he actually used some bad grammar. He invented some terminology to convey this idea. And I think our English translation is a little bit clumsy, because what John was really saying is that everyone who puts their trust in Jesus, that, that's what he means by believe. You know, not just believe that Jesus was a person that existed. No, but actually puts their trust in Jesus as opposed to trusting in themselves. That person will receive eternal life. And so we love John 3.16. That's why you see it. You know, to this day, you'll still see it at sporting events, someone holding up the sign, John 3.16, because we love that sentiment. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And then the passage continues, 3.17. We love 3.17 too. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is wonderful. This is great news. This is good news. Some people have struggled with that. People who sit down to read the Bible and they read about Jesus as the judge, like, wait a minute, how can the judge be the savior? What's going on here? He's like, yes, he is the judge, but he came to this world on a rescue mission. He was sent in to save the world. That's, that's the mission. Verse 18, we love the beginning of verse 18. Whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in Jesus, is not condemned. And we can stop right there and be on our merry way. But the verse continues, but whoever does not believe, whoever has not put their trust in Jesus, stands condemned already because they have not believed. They have not put their trust in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, it's sin. It's sin that separates us from God. And we can define sin in a number of different ways. Again, growing up in church life, I was taught that sin is anything we do, say, or think that displeases God. Anybody ever hear something like that? Like that? Sin is anything we, we, we do, we say, or we think that displeases God. And I think that's a fine way to define what sin is. You could also describe sin as the breaking of God's laws. God has given us laws to live by. We break his laws. That's sin. You could also define sin as the breaking of God's heart, right? If you break the law of the land and a police officer comes to arrest you, yes, you have not hurt their heart personally. That has no impact on them. But when we break God's laws, we hurt his heart in the process because God is not the policeman of the universe. He's the father 
of us all. So sin is the breaking of God's law. Sin is the breaking of God's heart. We often here at Hope talk about sin as the stepping outside of God's boundaries. God has given us boundaries to live within. And he gives these, these boundaries because he loves us. And he knows what's best for us. And he wants to keep us safe. And so he gives us these boundaries to live within. He puts a fence around us. And when we step outside of that fence, when we cross that barrier, when we step outside of those boundaries, that is sin. You can define sin as part of the human condition. You can define sin as the human condition, but perhaps the best way to describe sin, the most useful way to think about it, the most practical way to think about sin is as debt. Sin is debt. And you think about it. When you wrong someone, when you sin against somebody else, you owe them something. You owe them. You've done something wrong and you owe them something back. And when we sin against God, it's the same thing. We owe him something because of our sin. And so to think of sin Think of sin as debt. And the bad news, I'm going to tell you the good news, but the bad news is that there's nothing we can do in our own strength. There's nothing we can do in our own power as human beings to get rid of sin in our lives. There's no amount of good deeds, no amount of sacrifice, no amount of generosity, no matter like, okay, well, if I show up at church a lot, is that going to get rid of the sin for me? If I go to the Bible study, if I read the Bible every day, if I say my prayers, if I do all these things, can I get rid of sin? There's just nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do to get rid of sin. And that's bad news for us. But it's also bad news for God because he loves us. And he wants to be in relationship with us. And he wants us to be in heaven with him when we leave this earth. So because God loves us, he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He paid off our debt. He covered our debt. He died. Jesus died for our sins. And it's important to note that God did this for us not because he was obligated to, but because he loves us. God so loved the world, which is what compelled him to give his one and only son as a sacrifice on our behalf. That's how that works. God loved us. That's why he gave us this opportunity to receive Jesus as a Savior. And so ultimately, I believe that what I was taught as a child is true. A person really can't accept Jesus as their Savior until they acknowledge they need to be saved. It's so wonderful to see a large group of people here this morning. That's fantastic, especially in this day and age. I mean, so many people are leaving churches. There are so many reasons why people are repelled from churches and are disgusted by churches, you know. Think about the criticism or the hypocrisy or the self-righteousness or the righteous anger that exists in churches, and people are just leaving churches left and right. But on the other hand, there are many reasons why people are being drawn to churches. That's actually happening. People are being drawn to church communities. And we're almost 11 years old as a church, and over those years, I've seen people drawn into this local church, into Hope Community Church, and people are drawn to church for a number of different reasons. Some people, they're just going through a time of hardship, they're struggling, and they're looking for something, yes? They're looking for some kind of comfort, they're looking for some kind of hope, they're looking for something, and they connect with us and they find that something. Some people in our community are looking for ways to serve. They want to give back. They want their lives to matter. They want to serve in their community, and they find hope, and they find opportunities to serve. Some people are looking for community. Hey, that's in our name, Hope Community Church. Looking for relationships that matter. Let's go beyond just talking about the weather and sports. Let's talk about heart-level stuff, and they find 
Hope Community Church. And so there are a number of reasons why people connect or drawn to Hope Community Church. But at a certain point, a person needs to acknowledge their own sinfulness in order to receive Jesus as their Savior. I mean, you can be drawn to a church for a lot of different reasons, but if you never, if you never own up to your own sinfulness, you'll never have the chance to be saved. There are so many reasons why people leave local churches, right? Over the, these 11 years, we have lost dozens of people, and that's very sad. Lots of reasons why people leave a church. The saddest reason of all is when someone leaves church over the gospel. That person, maybe they enjoy the community, and they enjoy the opportunities to serve, and they enjoy the friendships, and they enjoy the relationships, and they enjoy the support, and they enjoy the encouragement, but they just can't accept the fact that they are a sinner. And they just can't accept the truth that God sent his son into this world to die for their sins. Guys, this is not a hypothetical situation I'm talking about. I've witnessed this as the pastor of this church, people leaving church over the gospel. So please know, especially those of you who are newer here, we believe in the gospel. We believe that none of us are good enough on our own to make our way into heaven, deserve heaven, is through Jesus, is through Jesus. He's the only way to receive that salvation, the only way to enter into heaven. And so last week, yes, we talked about Jesus as the Lamb of God, and he enters into the world, and at that last supper, Jesus gathered with his disciples. Do you remember last week? He gathered with his disciples. They were supposed to be celebrating the Passover, but Jesus made this holiday about himself. He says, once upon a time, we were supposed to be remembering how God saved our people, saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Now I'm going to remake this holiday, and I want to make it about me. And take this bread, eat this bread. This is my body that I'm giving up for you, and I'm about to shed my blood for you. And just a few hours later, that same night, Jesus was arrested by the temple guard. The Sanhedrin sent their own soldiers, not the Roman soldiers, they sent their own soldiers to go and arrest Jesus. And in the middle of the night, Jesus is put on trial in front of the Sanhedrin. And it just so happened that the people who are members of the Sanhedrin who are pro-Jesus, they were not invited to this trial. How about that? So Jesus was put on trial, and ultimately he was found guilty of blasphemy. You know what blasphemy is? Telling lies about God. You're guilty of telling lies about God. And so they look God in the face, the Son of God in the face, and say, you're guilty of telling lies about God. So the members of the Sanhedrin, they go to the Roman governor, they go to Pontius Pilate, it's early in the morning, and they want the Roman governor to take Jesus and to punish Jesus. And so Pilate, this man Pontius Pilate, who's a very fascinating person we meet in Scripture, has to deal with the dilemma of Jesus and what to do about Jesus. This passage is in your bulletin if you want to take a look. John 18, beginning with verse 33. And so again, remember that the members of the Sanhedrin, they have found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, but when they bring Jesus before Pilate, they say, well, no, he's guilty of uh, causing an insurrection. You know, He's trying to overthrow Rome. And so they just lie to get their way, yes? And so they burden Pilate with the problem of Jesus. As Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? That's what your people are saying. You're claiming to be a king, so are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Did you arrive at this conclusion on your own? Or did somebody else make this accusation? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Am I one of your subjects? 
am I subjugated to you as the king of the Jews? Pilate continues, your own people, Jesus, your own people and the chief priest handed you over to me. What is it you have done? You know, Pilate, again, is a fascinating person we meet. You learn about Pilate outside of just what's said in the Gospels. You learn about the history, and there was tension between Pilate and Caesar and the history that led up to that tension. And so Pilate was kind of on thin ice with Rome, almost sent to Jerusalem, almost sent to this place as kind of a punishment. So here he is, and he's a modern man. He doesn't have time for this religious nonsense. He's almost certainly a stoic, believing in logic. Here he is, surrounded by all these religious zealots in Jerusalem. Goodness gracious. So he just cuts to the chase. What is it you've done? What have you done? Jesus says, my kingdom. Remember, this series is called Kingdom Come. And that's where we're going to land next Sunday, just so you know where we're going. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. To which Pilate replies, what is truth? What is truth? Isn't that such a modern question? Is there such a thing as truth, as absolutely right, as absolutely wrong? Yet Jesus says he'd come to tell people the truth. And what did What did Jesus receive as a result of telling people the truth? So uh, Pilate doesn't know what to do with Jesus. He takes him back out to the people, and we're taught in church tradition that Pilate tries to release Jesus on three occasions. I suspect it was many more than three times. It seems like Pilate is really trying to get rid of the burden of what am I supposed to do with Jesus. So he takes him back out to the people and says, listen, I see no reason for a charge against this person. I see no reason to punish him. You take him. You punish him. But the crowd... They keep saying, you have to do something with Jesus. You have to punish him. You have to do something. And Pilate keeps trying to release Jesus. And ultimately, ultimately, he caves in. He says, fine. You hate this guy so much. I mean, it's clear that you're jealous of him. But I'm going to do this terrible thing. And I'm going to have him flogged. So Pilate's hoping, I'm going to have Jesus beaten. And hopefully, when the Jews see how he's beaten, they'll take him back, and he won't be my problem anymore. And so at that point in time, the Romans, uh, they were very um, skillful in torture, and they had determined that 40 lashes with a whip was enough to kill somebody, and so they whipped Jesus 39 times. And while he was being whipped, the soldiers realized, oh, is this the guy they're calling the king of the Jews? And they take some thorns, and they shape it into a crown, and they press it into his skull, and they, to mock him, they put a, a purple robe on, on him, and then they take him back to Pilate, and Pilate has to see this this brutalized man, whipped 39 times. And so Pilate takes Jesus out to the crowd and says, look, you brought me this guy. I don't think he's done anything wrong, but I had him flogged. Look how disfigured he is. Take him back. And Pilate's hoping that will be the end of it. The crowd says, no, that's not good enough. We want him crucified. Pilate says, if you want him crucified, go crucify him yourselves. I'm done with this. They say, no, you're going to crucify him. If you don't, we're going to tell on you. Any man who lets this Jesus go is no friend of Caesar, and we know you're on thin ice with Caesar. So finally, Pilate relents, washes his hand, and says, I'm not guilty of this, but he sentences Jesus to be crucified. He's taken to be crucified. 
He's nailed to the cross where he speaks his last words before death. And just before Jesus gives over his spirit to Father God, just before he commits his spirit to Father God, he says one word. And John wrote all this down because John was there at the foot of the cross. The disciple John was there as Jesus spoke this final word. And John wrote it down. And he wrote it down in Greek. Years later, the English translators, they took a look at this last word of Jesus, and they said, this word doesn't make any sense. We've got to find a way to translate this, because they looked at this one word like, this is an accounting term. This is like a financial thing. We've got to find a better way to translate this in English. So they came up with, it is finished. You've heard that, yes? It is finished. But it's a lousy translation of the actual original Greek term. The original Greek term is telestai. Telestai, which means the debt is paid in full. Back in those days, the days of Jesus, if you owed a debt, had money, you were being lent money, you'd have your little receipt book and you make your payments. And when you make your last payment, you get it stamped to Telestai. The debt is paid in full. It's all paid off. It's all paid off. It's the last word Jesus said is to Telestai. How about that? The debt is paid in full. I first learned that, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago learned what Jesus says to Telestai. And since then, I've shared it with people multiple times a year. If you've been a part of Hope, you've heard me say this before, Telestai. And what I've discovered is there's two responses that I get when I share that. Two responses. Some people, when I share what Jesus said, the debt is paid. Some people, they really don't care. Like, okay, whatever. Debt is paid in full. That's great. I don't know a debt, <laughs> right? I don't know a debt. If I owed a debt, maybe that would matter to me, but I'm not a sinner. I'm basically a good person, and so Jesus paid the debt. That really doesn't land with me. But for those of us who realize that we owe a debt, for those of us who know that we're sinners, this lands a lot differently to know that our debt that we owed God has been paid in full. Let me tell you something about me. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. Every possible way to define that term. I have stepped outside of God's boundaries. I have broken his laws. I have broken his heart. I've thought things. I've said things. I've done things that displease God. I am a sinner. And let me tell you something that I'm 100% certain of. I deserve hell. That's what I deserve. I deserve hell hell because I have fallen so short of God's glorious standard. I deserve to be condemned because I am a sinner. And guess what? I'm not alone. So are you. We're all sinners, friends. Don't fool yourselves. Listen, I know some of you. I know a lot of you. I know that you're capable of good and sacrifice, and serving, and volunteering, but you're still a sinner, just like me. Don't fool yourselves into thinking you're a good person. At your core, at our core, we are sinners. Do you believe me? One person does. (laughs) For the rest of you, let's do a little thought exercise. Ready? Ready for this? All right. If you could get away... With doing any one thing, what would you do? God gives you a free pass. Nobody's going to know. Your pastor's not going to know. The church isn't going to know. If you could do any one thing, what would you do? And then after you're done doing that one thing, you hit little button, it's a reset, it's like it never happened. If you could get away with doing anything, what would you do? Hmm? Anything. 
well, I would go and build some low-income housing. What would you really do, right? Go beat up your boss, something worse. Go rob, go steal, go get your revenge. If you could get away with doing any one thing, what would you do? Now, some of you in this room didn't play along. Why not? Because you're afraid. <laughs> you're afraid to answer the question. The rest of you, the kind of thoughts you were thinking in a church space, here we are in a sanctuary, all these saints looking down on you, and the thoughts that you were thinking, you still think you're a good person at your core? We're not good. That's the bad news. We're sinners. I'm a sinner. I deserve to be condemned, but I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to hell. <laughs> I'm not going to be condemned. Because when Father God looks down at me, he's going to see the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm getting into heaven because Jesus paid the cover charge. I'm getting in. Jesus paid off my debt. He took away my sins. And I'm 100% sure of both of these things that I deserve hell, but I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus has done for me. Paid off that debt. I've accepted that gift. And like I said, when God looks down at me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees the sacrifice of his one and only son. I'm going to heaven because the Lamb of God died in my place. And all of us, every single one of us, Every single person you know, regardless of our past, regardless of what we've done, regardless of what we thought, regardless of how you spent your night last night, regardless of how you grew up, all of us have the ability to receive forgiveness of sins and salvation in Jesus Christ. Because what Jesus has done for all of humankind, he's paid off all of our debt. Not just mine, not just yours, but he's paid off all of our debt. And all of us who acknowledge our sinfulness... All of us who acknowledge we need a Savior, all of us who put our trust in Jesus as opposed to trusting in ourselves will be saved and we will have the opportunity to go to heaven. We'll be there. We just need to put our trust in Jesus instead of putting our trust in ourselves. We're going to close this message time today with a prayer. And um, this prayer has a, has a name. Uh, sometimes it's called the sinner's prayer. Have you heard of the sinner's prayer? And, I'm not sure that that's a great title for this prayer. But basically, during this prayer time, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus as your Savior. And some of you in this room have already received Christ as Savior. Some of you have heard this gospel message time and time again. And maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've ever really heard this and put it together. And so if you'd like to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can do, it, do that during this prayer time. There's nothing magic about these words that I'm going to lift up. There's nothing magic about this prayer. It's just an opportunity for us to acknowledge that we have fallen short of God's glorious standard and that we need Jesus in order to be saved. I invite you to pray with me. Father God, I confess that I have fallen short. I confess that I am a sinner. I have broken your heart. I have broken your laws. I have stepped outside of your boundaries. I confess that at my core, I'm not a good person, even though I want to be God. Father, I want to do good. I want to serve you. I want to, to please you. I want you to be happy with me. But at my core, God, I confess that I am a sinner. And Jesus, I know that I can't save myself. I can't earn my way into heaven. And so I don't put my trust in myself, God. I put, myself, I put my trust in you, Jesus. I don't trust in what I've done, but I trust in what you've done. And Jesus, you entered into this world sinless, blameless, blemishless, perfect, 
and you died in my place. You suffered the punishment in my place. And so, Jesus, I look to you for my salvation. I trust you for my salvation. And you're the only one, Jesus. You're the only one who could do for me, who could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Father God, hear our prayers for all of us who turn to you, all of us who put our trust in you. Jesus, thank you for your great sacrifice. Father God, thank you for your great sacrifice. Jesus, thank you for giving us the gift of forgiveness, the gift of heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.